0: Yeah? Let me say a prayer, and we'll look at the word together. Father, we thank you so much for your blessing upon us. Thank you, God, that you've enabled us to be here, to worship you, God. This is something that should not be. According to how holy you are and how sinful we are, we should not be able to be in relationship with you. We shouldn't be able to access you. We shouldn't be alive. It's just your grace, God. That song we sang about how amazing your love is, how amazing your grace is, how amazing you are, is such an understatement. You are so inexplicably good, God. So inexplicably gracious and generous to us. Thank you, Father, for your salvation. Thank you for this community of believers called the body of Christ. That's so beautiful, such a blessing to us. And we thank you, God, for your word that is powerful and eternal and applicable today, just as applicable today as it's ever been. I pray that we would open our ears now to receive it, to hear it, God, and to put it into practice in our lives. I pray that, that your word would come forth in clarity and in power and that all of us would, re- would put it into practice immediately and obey you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm not going to be sharing any new information with you all. If I tell you that our society is facing some, some incredible challenges right now, right? I think if I were to talk to anybody around the world, anybody that I could come in contact with, right? There might be some like, remote tribes and things like that, that that have very limited access to what's going on in the rest of the world, but like 99.99999% of the world's population, if I were to talk to them right now and I were to say, man, our world's going through some real challenges right now, isn't it? They would say, yeah, we are. <laughs> Um, I don't remember a time in our world, I mean I'm only 38, but in my experience I don't remember a time where uh, the the entire world is experiencing as much of the same thing as we're experiencing today as a global community. We're facing this pandemic, of course, that's that's presenting major challenges to all of us, right? It's presenting major challenges to our Sunday service this morning. (laughs) Um, and And if that weren't enough to deal with, Um, Our country, our society, and many other societies around the world are experiencing ethnic tensions and racial tensions that are that are really challenging. And they're not new to this country, right? Racial tension is not new to this country. It's been been in existence as long as this country's been in existence, right? We're hearing about a lot a lot now and I'm glad we're hearing about it a lot now because we need to because we need to make some real changes. And the church needs to lead the way in showing the world how we can be unified across racial boundaries, across ethnic boundaries, across national boundaries, across political boundaries, right? The church needs to lead the way in these things. And I just mentioned as well, political division, right? I don't know if our country's ever been as politically divided. I guess maybe during the Civil War. That was probably quite divided. But we're super divided, right, politically? Yeah, people are, people are attacking each other because of their political uh, beliefs and affiliations. There's a lot of uncertainty in our world. And here at H2O, we've we've invested a lot of time, a lot of conversation, a lot of prayer in how to handle these tensions in the way that most honors God and most loves our neighbor. We really want to handle these things well. We want to handle them like Jesus would handle them. And there's a lot of uncertainty about how our current political and cultural climate will affect our ministry on campus going forward. But with all this uncertainty, there's one thing that we can be absolutely certain of. That God will use these crises for his purposes and glory. I know that with 100% confidence that God will use these things. That these things don't surprise him. They don't scare him. He's not reeling, like, wondering what to do, right? He's not like, oh, man, the devil really got got one over on me this time. What am I going to do now? God knows, right? And he will use these things for his, his glory and for our good. And during the summer of 2020, when our pandemic was still pretty fresh and, and <clears throat> we were getting ready to have an election and, and there's just like lots of things swirling around. Um, in the summer of 2020, we're getting ready to, to uh, launch our fall outreach that we do every fall with entirely different set of circumstances than we've ever faced on campus and we had a prayer meeting just thinking about all these things and planning for what we're going to do in the upcoming year. And, and we're dealing with these, these doubts and uncertainties and stuff during this prayer meeting. And in the midst of all that, we felt like God spoke a prophetic word to us. We believe the Holy Spirit was telling us that sometimes it takes Goliath to reveal the warrior. Sometimes it takes Goliath to reveal the warrior. Does anyone remember that prayer meeting? We were in the park at County Farm Park. Was anybody there? Maybe not. Maybe no. Probably Elliot was probably there. Maybe Mark. Sometimes it takes Goliath to reveal the warrior. That's the, the word that we felt the Holy Spirit speak to us. And Jason Kohler, who's uh, my best friend, and he's a missionary overseas, and he came out of H2O years ago. Um, he was there, and as soon as the Holy Spirit spoke that word, he's like, man, that sounds like a sermon. And I thought, you know, I think you're right. Maybe that should be a sermon. <laughs> so here's that sermon that came out of that prophetic word takes Goliath to reveal the warriors sometime. And that's that's exactly what happened with David in 1 Samuel 17. So let's take a look. We're going to take a look at David and Goliath. Anyone know that story? David and Goliath? Familiar with some? All right, maybe five, ten of you, according to the nods. It's good. Good numbers. So turn to 1 Samuel 17 with me, will you? So like I said, most of you probably know this story pretty well. David was an insignificant shepherd boy who was the youngest of eight sons, the least likely person to take on the enemy of Israel, who was intimidating the greatest warriors in the army. But David, filled with the passion for the glory of God, rose up and challenged the giant in one-on-one combat and defeated him, causing the Philistine army to flee, right? God used this national crisis that Israel was facing to thrust David into the national spotlight and to begin David's journey to the throne. David's biggest battle he ever faced was the very thing God used to reveal the warrior that he had been preparing inside of David to the world. So we could look at this passage, we could probably pull dozens of principles about what it means to be like a great leader or a great warrior for God. But today I just want to look at a few. So first thing, God uses Goliaths To reveal our strength that he's been producing in our lives through training. God uses Goliath to reveal our strength that he's been producing in our lives through training. All of us probably know that when you're in a time of crisis, it really reveals what you're made of, right? You don't know what's inside the orange until you squeeze it, right? (laughs) So when we're squeezed, what's really inside of us comes out. Um, A lot of people don't like who they are when they're stressed or tired, hungry, angry, or lonely, or tired, right? But I would argue that what comes out in those moments that you're squeezed is probably what's really inside, right? Anybody can act like a nice person when things are going really great, right? What happens when you're squeezed, how you act when you're squeezed, is what's really inside you. We don't know where our limit is until we're brought to the end of ourselves. And we don't know our strength until the challenge comes that's big enough and mean enough to put a demand upon our strength, right? So we don't know all the good stuff that's inside either, or all the bad stuff, until the challenge comes to put a demand on it. I believe God wants to raise up an army of love and truth in these days, not to forcefully oppose the world, but to oppose the enemy to save the world, right? I think a lot of people get that mixed up. They think that they have to oppose the world or an organization or a political party or a football team. Don't even get me started on this coming Saturday. I don't want to lose my focus. But we're not opposing the world. We're opposing the enemy on the world's behalf, right? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save it. We're praying that these giants that we're facing will be the very thing that aggravates the church on our campus and the church in our country, enough to cause us to rise up and engage in battle against the things that, that would challenge God's authority. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, powers, and rulers of this dark world. So becoming a warrior means going through training, right? I would hope that if you were in war, if you're getting ready to face a battle, that you would get training. I hope you would submit yourself to that training process because if you try to fight a battle without training, you will lose, right? 99 times out of 100, you will lose. And if you rely on just your skill or your strength without training, then that's probably not a good recipe for victory, right? Becoming a warrior means going through training. Goliath did not create a warrior in David. He only revealed the warrior that God had already been producing and preparing for a long time. Let's take a look at a few verses in 1 Samuel 17. We're going to look at verses 34 to 36. You can find it. I don't have it up on the PowerPoint today. We're going to make it work for it. We're going to make those thumbs work for these, these uh, passages today, all right? We're going to be in 1 Samuel 17 the whole time, so we won't have to work too hard. So let me read it for you. Verses 34... <laughs> That's some bold words from a, from a teenage shepherd boy, isn't it? Getting, re- getting ready to face a, a giant seasoned warrior. And notice that David didn't say, because this giant has really ticked me off, I'm going to fight him. What was his reason for, for making these bold statements? It's in this last phrase, for he has defied the armies of the living God. That's his reason for engaging in battle, right? Not because his, his comfort was offended. Not because his dignity was offended, right? But because God's honor was offended. God's glory was threatened. That's why David challenged the giant. Notice that David wasn't looking for a fight, right? Does anybody know why David even came to the battlefield? Yeah. That's right. Good work, Seth. Yeah! <laughs> That's my son. That's my boy. Yeah, David came to bring food to his brothers. He, He came to bring supplies. But he was prepared when the fight came to him. He wasn't looking for a fight, but he was prepared when the fight came to him, right? We're not wandering around trying to pick a fight with everybody. But when the fight comes to us, when the enemy brings the fight to us, we better be prepared to handle it. And David was prepared because he had undergone the father's training in his life. If you want to be ready for the future battle when it comes, you have to submit to God's training now. If you wait until the battle, like I said before, to start training, then you're toast. You won't make it. The prophet Samuel anointed David to be the next king of Israel one chapter earlier, in 1 Samuel 16. So David had already been anointed to be king, but but he wasn't appointed to be king until a long time later, until Second Samuel. There's always a gap between the anointing and the appointing in our lives, right? You might be anointed to do great things for God, and that's awesome. That's wonderful. But it doesn't mean you're ready now, right? David was anointed, and then there was this big gap between the anointing and the appointing. And that gap was called training. And that gap in our lives is called training as well. There's always a gap between the anointing and the appointing. God needs to prepare you, to test you, to develop strength, perseverance, and grit if you'll be ready for the battle. And can I tell you the biggest thing, the biggest method of training he uses in our lives to prepare us for future battles? It's hardship. I knew you wouldn't like it. (laughs) Derek's like, yeah, ooh, come on, hardship, I love it. And that's all right that you don't like it. We're not supposed to like it. And Derek doesn't like it either. He's just being nice to me. God uses discomfort in our lives, right? He uses crisis. He uses suffering in our lives to train us. And if we can't learn to endure suffering with faith, we will never develop as warriors. If we can't learn to endure suffering with faith, not just go through suffering, but but to endure suffering with faith, because that's really the difference maker, isn't it? Everybody goes through suffering. Some people survive it, some people don't. But even many who survive suffering come out of it embittered, right? As Lecrae would put it, they don't get bitter, or they don't get better, they get bitter. They say don't get bitter, get better. I'm working on switching them letters. Nate's loving it. Nate's like, oh, please, oh, do (laughs) No. You guys don't want me to rap? No, I better cut out half my sermon because I was going to rap. I'm just kidding. A lot of people don't get better. They get bitter through suffering, right? But if we endure suffering with faith, then God will use it to prepare us. So what has God been using in your life to develop the warrior in you? Have you rejected it as an attack from the enemy? Or have you accepted it as God's training? And I'll tell you, it's possible that it could be both an attack from the enemy as well as God's tool for training. When the devil opposed Jesus in the wilderness, God used that very attack that the enemy brought against Jesus to prepare him and launch him into his ministry. The scripture tells us that Jesus returned from the wilderness season full of the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like the very next thing. Jesus came back from the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then he started doing miracles. There's no coincidence that that wilderness time was right before the time of appointing for Jesus. Even our Savior went through that process. And God will use your hardships to increase his Holy Spirit's power in your life if you learn to endure it with faith as Jesus did and as David did. The warrior had been developing in David for a long time, but it took a national crisis to reveal the warrior to the world. It took Goliath to reveal the warrior. I want to tell you about a really small trial. Looking back on it, it, it seems like a small trial, but in the middle of it, it felt like a big trial for Julie and I. Julie and me, excuse me. When we were, uh, when we were new parents. So Seth was a baby. Well, he was about 18 months old. And Joel was like six months old. So when Joel was, Joel was born, when Seth was 13 months old, and so it was intense. Man, that time, I was so tired, Sethward. You guys wore me out. We have great kids, but man, when you have them 13 months apart, it's gonna wear you out. <laughs> and so, uh, Seth was really little, and Joel was like an angel baby for the first six months of his life. Like Joel, he ate great, he slept great. Even when he was first born, he was like looking. I told somebody this recently. He was like looking up at Julie, like with, like with his eyes wide open, and like like sticking his tongue out, <laughs> like licking his lips and stuff. And Julie's like, "This baby, is, this baby is so sweet," and he was just like really easy for this first six months of his life. And then, when he hit six months, almost to the day, I remember, I think it was like Christmas Eve, and he's six months old on Christmas Day. He started having the hardest time sleeping that you could ever imagine. <laughs> he was, uh, like, at six months old, a lot of babies develop separation anxiety because they start to be able to conceive of things that aren't present with them physically at that moment. All right? So they get this thing called, what's it called? Object permanence. Where, where they start being able to like, oh wait, mom exists somewhere in the universe, but she's not here with me right now. And since I can't see her now, she's probably never coming back, and I'm gonna die here in my crib. And so they start crying. <laughs> so, so, so Joel started freaking out every time we left him in his crib at night. And so we'd, normally we'd lay him down. We'd put him to bed. He'd actually usually go to sleep okay, but then at some point in the, ni- in the night, like 1 or 2 a.m., when we're like in the middle of our deepest sleep he'd wake up and start screaming and so we'd no problem we'd go in the room we'd give him his pacifier cover him, cover him up with his blanket and then he'd go right back to sleep and then 15 minutes later he'd wake up again and start screaming again we'd go back in there do it again and then at some point many times he wouldn't go to back to sleep at all and he did this many nights not every night but many nights for 12 months from the time he was six months old to the time he was 18 months old. And Julie and I were just exhausted. Um, sleep deprivation does not make people feel like them be- their best selves. <clears throat> and I remember just being exasperated. I mean, like I said, it doesn't sound like a, a huge trial, but in that moment, man, I was like, I didn't know what to do. I remember falling to my knees outside of the nursery door and <laughs> just listening to my son scream. It's like, God, where are you? <laughs> it like, felt like God had abandoned us, right? I was like, God, why aren't you helping? I've, I've like named it, I've claimed it, I've blabbed it, I've grabbed it, I've done all these things. <laughs> I believed you for this, God, and why aren't you answering? Feeling like God was distant. And then one night, I don't remember how long it had been, but one night I was laying in bed just complaining to God probably. It's like, God, why won't you hear me? Why won't you answer? And I felt like God said, son, when will you let me train you through this? Like, why are you resisting this? and resisting the training that I want to take you through. If you would submit to it, then I could actually develop your patience and help you grow. A lot of times, God's trying to bring us through something hard and we're resisting it as an attack from the devil. And it might be that, but God wants to use it for our training to make us better. And accepting God's training doesn't mean that we want it to continue. It doesn't mean that we allow it to continue. I want to do everything I can to help my boy sleep well, right? But it means that we resolve that the only way out of this hardship is straight through it, and we continue to persevere with faith until we come out the other side, trusting God rather than doubting God. And listen, God can handle your doubts, right? If you're doubting him, he's not I don't know, he's not going to like get so offended and leave you if you doubt. But push through your doubt into faith, right? Even in the midst of your doubt, keep going straight through the trial and hold on to faith. So let's ask God for that resolve today. Let's resolve to enter into the training we must endure so that when Goliath comes, up, so that when Goliath comes, God can reveal the warrior he's been producing. All right, second thing. God uses Goliaths to bring out aggression in us. You can't read this story without seeing aggression, right? If you're honest. And aggression is an aspect of the warrior's heart that Goliath brought out in David. Let's look again at 1 Samuel 17. I want to read verses 43 through 47 this time. And listen to the aggression that you hear in, in David's voice. Again, this meek little shepherd boy. He said in verses 43 through 47, And the Philistine said to David—I'm sorry, this isn't David first, but you get it. You get the idea. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Whew! Come on. <laughs> the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, <clears throat> Excuse me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Dang. You ever said that to anybody? I hope not. At least I hope you didn't mean it. You probably said it to your brother or something at some point, but hopefully you didn't mean it. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Again, why? Why is he doing this? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. Man, I love that. I want to be like that. I want to be like David. <laughs> David had had enough, he had reached his limit. David was not a particularly violent or angry person, right? I mean, David was a poet, a psalmist. Like, he would play his harp and sing songs, love songs to God as he was watching over his sheep. He was a gentle man. But even gentle people reach their boiling point, they have something that will bring them to their boiling point. Isn't that right? What would cause you to lose your cool? All of us have it. I hope all of us have it. What would cause you to lose your cool? Is it when your family's mistreated or disrespected, maybe? Maybe it's when you're disrespected. Maybe it's when something that's really core to your identity is insulted that causes you to lose your cool. When someone mistreats my wife or kids, that gets me angry. I always tell my kids, if you want to get on my bad side, the fastest way to get on dad's bad side is to disrespect your mom. <laughs> that, that, that brings me to my boiling point pretty quickly. <laughs> it's true, Seth says. Can I get a witness, Seth? Maybe it's an issue of injustice that you're passionate about that brings you to your boiling point. Maybe it's something silly like sports. That's definitely not me. Oh no, not me. Or maybe it's whether we should listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. I've heard some pretty heated debates about that recently. <laughs> Maybe it's whether One Direction or the Jonas Brothers were a better boy band. My vote is in sync, so don't don't disagree with me either, because it's going to get me mad. So let me tell you something that should cause you to lose your cool. The thing that caused David to lose his cool, when the kingdom of darkness sets itself against God's lordship, sets itself up against God's lordship, and threatens to tear down. What God has established. That should tick us off. When Satan deceives and abuses and enslaves people that Jesus loves so much he died for, that should tick us off, right? That's when we need some warriors to rise up in holy aggression and crack the devil's skull with a stone like David did. Amen? That's a good time to say amen. There we go. We got a couple. Aggression is an absolutely vital attitude that we have to learn to display at times if we will conquer the kingdom of darkness. So how often do you feel angry about the things that set themselves up against the lordship of Christ? First in yourself, and second in our world, right? If you're not angry against the ways that you insult God's lordship with your sin, then you have no business getting angry at the way the world does it, right? Because, can I just give you guys a little piece of wisdom? Sinners sin. So don't be surprised when it happens, right? Don't be surprised when you turn on the news and you see sinners sinning because that's what they do, and that's what we do because we're, we're sinners being saved continually, right? But what makes, even, what makes much less sense, as, as little sense as sin makes, it makes even less sense when a, when a son of God, when a daughter of God who has tasted the goodness of God, willingly rejects God's goodness and trades it for some, some fleeting pleasure that insults him. That should make us way more shocked and appalled and angry when I sin than it should when someone, else is, when, when someone else sins, right? You guys have heard the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner, right? I heard Pastor Nino say, and I think you maybe got this from somebody else, he says, love the sinner, hate your own sin. <laughs> because if I spend all my hatred hating my own sin, then then... I'm probably going to do the world a bigger favor, right, than wasting my energy on hating their sin. Like, we hate sin anytime we see it, right? But the emphasis is on us overcoming sin, ridding ourselves of sin more than it is ridding the world of sin. Does that make sense? I think it does. All right, where am I? Okay, so anger is is supposed to be a regular part of your life. And if the only thing that makes your blood boil is the political party you disagree with, or the sports team you hate, or your coworkers, or classmates, or siblings, or bad drivers, then man, you're missing it. Take all of that anger and direct it towards the kingdom of darkness. Again, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and rulers of this dark world. Amen? I'm not saying we should act like jerks, because Jesus didn't act like a jerk, right? When Jesus showed anger, it was towards the self righteous people who claimed to be servants of God that he showed the most anger towards. And even when he did that, he did it in love. And everything we do, whether we're gentle or angry or whatever we are, has to be motivated by love. But love is not always nice, is it? Sometimes love is downright aggressive. I want to tell you a story about the way love can sometimes motivate us to be aggressive. This is one of my favorite stories to tell in sermons. I tell it, like, all the time. And if you haven't heard it yet, then I hope you like it. But many of you have heard it, and so you just enjoy it. It's been too long since we told the story. It was like three months ago at Core Leadership Retreat that Cindy told the story. So it's time to bring it back, Cindy. Here we go. So I got this story from a friend of mine who's, uh, who was a Chi Alpha student in the great state of Texas. Come on, can I get a what well, well, for Texas? Um, his name is Alex Rodriguez, <clears throat> and now he's uh, he works at the National—yeah, A-Rod, the baseball guy. Just kidding, different A-Rod. <laughs> um, <clears throat> he was a student in Texas, and one of his friends who was ministering in Texas, this story is about him, all right? So now Alex is is a National Chi Alpha staff guy in Missouri. Anyway, so he told this story one time in a sermon that he preached. Alex did, and I said, dude, I need to get your notes because I want to tell your story and just read it the way you told it. So he said, yeah, of course, bro. And so he gave me his notes. And so I'm going to read Alex's story to you now. Eric is currently a Chi Alpha missionary at Rice University. He stands about six foot two with broad former college baseball player shoulders and an East Texas twang to a speech. A few years ago, when Eric was a small group leader in Chi Alpha at Sam Houston State University, he had an old high school friend who just happened to be in town that night stirring up trouble. The friend asked if Eric wanted to meet up If Eric wanted to meet up, for old times' sake, and Eric agreed. Have either of you heard this story? Okay, good. This is going to be fun. (laughs) So his friend asked if Eric was willing to drive out to a bar and meet him. Eric reluctantly went, but asked one of his small group guys to come with him because he felt trouble was brewing. Eric's friend came to meet him in the parking lot. And from several feet away, Eric could smell the bar coming off his breath. He could see that his friend could not walk straight, and his speech was slurred. Eric had to catch him as he stumbled while attempting a handshake. It was clear that his old friend was significantly drunk, so Eric insisted his friend stay the night with him, because a three-hour drive back to his home at midnight, under those intoxicated circumstances, would not be good for him or for the hopes and dreams of anyone else on the road. But his friend, void of all rationality, became furious at the thought of someone else telling him what to do. Eric argued with his friend for 10 minutes to stay the night and sleep in his house. He would help cover gas tomorrow if only his intoxicated friend would not drive. But every argument and suggestion Eric made was met by his friend's irrationality and curses. It became clear to Eric he had only two options. First, he could let his drunk friend attempt a three hour drive home at midnight with the high risk he would never make it home, or two, he could stop his friend from behaving stupidly and flirting with death by any means necessary. It then dawned on Eric that that there was only one option. So Eric's six foot two frame wound up and his former college baseball player who used to throw 90 mile an hour fastballs through a 90 mile an hour right hook that connected with his friend's jaw. And immediately his friend dropped to the ground unconscious. Eric's small group guy is sitting in the truck watching all this. <laughs> and when Eric punched him, the small group guy started freaking out, saying, I can't believe you knocked him out. I thought you Chi Alpha guys were Christians. Why did you do that? Eric looked his disciple straight in the eye and said, over my dead body, is he going to live a stupid life? Over my dead body, is he going to live a stupid life? And for the rest of that small group member, <laughs> the rest of that small group member's life, he never sinned again. The two then proceeded to load Eric's unconscious friend into a vehicle. They drove to IHOP, unloaded him into a booth, and Eric gave the keys to his small group guy and told him to split because he knew that when his friend woke up, he was not going to be happy and he didn't need to be anywhere near those keys. Eventually, the friend regained consciousness two weeks later. I'm just kidding. Eventually, he regained consciousness. He created a massive scene in IHOP, which is not uncommon to IHOP because it's the Walmart of restaurants. And after much cursing and yelling, he told Eric his final words. Eric, I will never forgive you for this. And when I get my truck back and drive home, you and I are done. People don't always appreciate it when you love them aggressively, do they? (laughs) But it doesn't mean we don't do it, right? Eric owned up to his actions by saying, I'd rather have you alive and be your enemy than have you dead because I was a friend that did nothing. Aggression is an important quality when you're in a war, right? And we are in a war against the enemy for the souls of those who Christ loves and died for. As if we're, if it's peacetime, you don't need warriors. You need diplomats, diplomats and politicians and, and party goers and, and, uh, and banquet throwers and all that stuff. But if you're in a war, which we're in, you need Warriors. I pray that God uses the Goliaths that are setting themselves up against his honor to ignite an aggressive love in the hearts of his church. Amen? All right, last thing. And this is the shortest one in case you're getting tired. In case you're getting hungry. You're not supposed to mention lunch while you're preaching a sermon, by the way, because then everyone gets distracted. So I won't do it. (laughs) I broke that rule like a dozen times last week because I talked about food like through my whole sermon. So last thing, number three. God uses Goliath to reveal and increase our faith. And this is kind of similar to what we've been talking about, but I think there's some some nuances here that I want to make sure we hit. Goliath reveals a level of faith that you didn't know you had. And when you're up against a battle, it seems you can't win. You either have to abandon your faith, or you dig your heels into faith and brace yourself for the fight. And this quality that David exhibited almost goes without saying, "Of course we need faith, right? But David's ability to keep faith in God in the middle of trial is something that we need to take a moment, a moment to learn from. First Samuel 1737, again. Actually, maybe we didn't read this one yet, but anyway, First Samuel 1737. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David had no confusion about where where his strength came from, right? His confidence didn't come in his skill as a warrior, even though he trained. His confidence still didn't come in his skill as a warrior. God had proven himself faithful to David over a period of time. That's where his confidence lied. And in the midst of crisis, David chose to recall God's faithfulness. When Julie and I are up against a crisis, it's easy for us to forget all the ways God has pulled through in the past for us. This past year, we were really seeking God for what school we should put our kids in this current school year, and things were not lining up. Things were just like not working out the way that we felt God was leading us to the direction he was leading us to go. And you start to get afraid. Even though God has been so faithful over the years, you start to get afraid in this newest crisis, right? And You tend to forget all the ways God's been faithful to you in the past. But in those moments when Julie and I are facing crisis, when one of us has the presence of mind to remember what God has done for us in the past, that he's never let us down, it changes so much, right? Every once in a while we'll be like worrying about something and talking about things and we start to get afraid, and then we're like, wait. What about that last crisis? God was faithful, right? Did God not see us through that last crisis, and the crisis before that, and the crisis before that, and every crisis we've ever faced? Has God ever let us down? God has never let us down. Why do we think that he's going to let us down this time, right? If you're willing to recall God's faithfulness and not forget how faithful he's been to you, in the middle of the crisis, it changes everything. I don't know all of your stories All of your joys and sorrows, the victories and the losses that you've experienced, but I can say with complete confidence that I know God has never failed you. God has never failed you. Even at that time that it looked like He did, He didn't. All right? If I'm going to choose God's perspective or your perspective, I'm going to choose God's because God knows all the variables that you don't know. And even if it looked like He failed you, He did not fail you. God has never failed you. He's been there for you, even at your lowest point. And when the next crisis comes, That track record of faithfulness that he has shown you will give you confidence if you choose to recall that faithfulness in the midst of that crisis. One of Billy Graham's mentors, his name is Victor Raymond Edmond, he said this quote that I love. He said, don't doubt in the dark what you knew in the light. Don't doubt in the dark what you knew in the light. Right? When it's dark, you obviously can't see as clearly as you did when it was light. And when the lights turn off, if God was there when the lights were on, right in front of you, and all of a sudden the light turns off, don't doubt that he's he's left you, right? The same things that were true in the light are still true in the dark. And don't doubt it. And God might have been the one who flipped the switch in the first place. (laughs) So don't doubt that he's in the room. In those moments, we hold on to what God has done for us in the past, and we hold on to his promise that he's preparing for us for in the future, for a future victory, for a greater glory. A lot of people lose the battle, not because they never fight, but because they give up before the victory. And how many battles have been lost because the person gave up right before the victory, right? That's how marriages fail. That's how churches fail. And businesses fail and teams fail. People know it's going to be a fight. They just didn't know how, how hard the fight would be that it would take this long to win it. But when we fix our eyes not on the battle, but on God's history of faithfulness in the past and his purpose for the battle in the future, man, it steals us. It it fortifies us to keep fighting till the battle is won. So you guys can stand up. We're going to close here. You You guys have a closing song for us, Elliot? Yes, awesome. You guys can come on up. So what kingdom battle has God given you to fight today? That, that's, that's what I want you guys to do. In response to this sermon, I want you to think about this. What kingdom battle has God given you to fight today? You can even write something down. Write, take a note down of how God wants you to battle in a way that maybe you haven't been battling well enough. In what ways are you treating passively what God has commanded you to treat aggressively? Maybe maybe you're treating a certain sin in your life passively. And God's like, no, we need to battle this, son. Right? We need to rise up as a warrior against this thing. Maybe you're treating your mental health passively, and God wants you to, to, to battle for health aggressively and to use every tool he's put in your, in your, I don't know, in your, what's it called? A quiver. Every arrow in your quiver he wants you to use to fight for mental health. Maybe he needs you to fight—he's calling you to fight for your friends or your family member's salvation. Maybe he's given you orders to fight injustice. Maybe he's given you orders to fight racism with aggression. Aggressive love, right? Not—not—not not, not aggressive anger, aggressive love. And that could include anger. Maybe God has called you to fight against abortion aggressively in love. Not against human beings, but against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark world, right? God calls us to fight against these things. Don't shy away from the battle like the army of Israel was doing. Rather, charge into the battle like David did. Because the battle is the very thing that will reveal God's warrior in us, right? Amen. All right, these guys are gonna lead us in a song.